So this is round two as we would look at it in India right now. The private hospitals are completely full to the brim. We are running out of beds. We are running out of ventilators. Right and now, we are in the second wave or the second tsunami wave that we are levels of oxygen. It is mayhem at this point. A devastating second wave of COVID-19 is overwhelming India's healthcare sector. And nearly all of the dozen doctors we spoke to warn it's on the brink of collapse. Almost every day, the number of new cases rises to an unprecedented point. Hundreds of patients were recently put at risk when hospitals started running out of oxygen tanks. And the country, which prides itself as the pharmacy of the world, does not have nearly enough COVID medication to go around. Today, we take stock of how India's doctors and patients are surviving this brutal health crisis and what comes next. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. For doctors, grief is a familiar feeling. They encounter death on the daily. But the scale of death surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic has floored even physicians. It feels like being trapped, an oppressive environment, for lack of a better word. Shraddha Subramanian is a resident at a hospital in the city of Pune, in the hardest-hit state in India right now. Almost daily, I walk past the emergency room of our state-run hospital that is flooded with patients looking for a bed, patients sharing an oxygen cylinder while the country faces a crunch. She was one of several doctors who shared their fears with us. Rabindra Mehta, in the southern city of Bangalore, was another. He's the chief of critical care at one of the hospitals there. Currently, we are chalk block out of beds. This situation, I think I can say with confidence, is through all the country and all the metros. To give an example, the hospital opened up 50 beds. They filled up in one and a half hours flat. We also heard from Ankita Singh, a doctor in the northern state of Haryana. She said India is facing shortages not just of tools and appliances, but also of personnel. The doctor-to-patient ratio here is approximately 1.3 doctors for 1,000 people. These are the stats from 2017. The latest reports say that the ratio now has decreased even more and it's less than one doctor for 1,000 people. Just by looking at that ratio, we can actually make out how exhausted the doctors here must be. And all of the doctors stress the ubiquity of this second wave. Here's Anuj Tiwari, who works at a public hospital in Mumbai. The past... Two, three weeks have been absolute madness, to say the least. And the worst part of all, even the young ones are getting involved. Even patients who are in their 20s, 30s are requiring O2. And it's been crazy, like social media friends, acquaintances are getting in touch to get a bed. And all I can do is just tell them politely, sorry, no, I cannot help you. The feeling of helplessness is profound. And I don't know what to say. It has been, it has been absolutely crazy. Like, this is something we have never seen in life. First wave was absolutely nothing in front of this. It's notable that those doctors you just heard from are all over the country, north, south, east, and west. We're also hearing from patients and their family members, too. Hi, my name is Tanmay Goyal, and my entire family has been found COVID positive. The day uh, my father was found positive, I was roaming around the city. 
and it was really tough to find even a single packet of uh, Fabiflu. Fabiflu is an antiviral medication approved in India to treat COVID-19. Tanmay eventually found some for his family through a tweet, but then more pressing needs emerged. My father's oxygen level dipped below 90. So it was a panicky situation. And because I knew that by the time the doctor will decide whether he needs to be hospitalized or not, I'll have to put every efforts to just find a bed and in case the oxygen cylinder is required. So I had a, the uh, responsibility of managing it before the doctor decides that my father needs to be hospitalized. Tanmay has had friends post his father's name, age, health status, and phone number publicly on Twitter to try and find help. And he's not the only one. If you look on Twitter, you'll easily find hundreds of parents, colleagues, friends, and children pleading for assistance. They're searching for hospital beds, for ventilators, for oxygen, plasma, and medicines. Many of them are posting their phone numbers, hoping someone will call with answers. There was one case where a 65-year-old journalist in the northern city of Lucknow live-tweeted his depleting oxygen levels. He begged for someone to come help him. And he died before anyone did. Watching all of this fear and desperation unfold on social media, we wanted to know how India got to this point and what was being done about it. So we called on Dr. Giridhar Babu. He's a professor of epidemiology who also works with the Public Health Foundation of India. The day we talked to him, it was 7 p.m. in Bangalore, where he lives, and he just left a pretty high-profile call. So I'm just coming out of a meeting chaired by the chief minister of the state, Karnataka, along with all the heads of the political parties. This year has been a lot of unexpected events happening and the surge is completely uncontrolled. So that's why probably for the first time, the governor of the state of Karnataka had called in a meeting with all the political parties to address the corona situation. Mm And as you mentioned, you are a public health expert, and we're talking to you at a time when Mumbai and Delhi have both imposed strict regulations and lockdowns, when the UK has red-listed or or blocked from travel many travelers from India because of the pandemic. So what's the sense in the public health community right now in India? Are people more scared than they were? I think the virus surprised everyone, including public health community. The surge of cases that's happening in the country is unprecedented compared to the last year. Whatever the peak we had for the first wave, we saw that peak very early on in the second wave. Some of the state governments in the country took extraordinary steps in preparing, but their comparison was mostly to the first wave. So they had multiplied their capacity twice as that of what they handled in first wave. But now they're seeing cases nearly five times or six times more than what they had prepared. In January, Prime Minister Narendra Modi declared victory over the virus. In this war, every person 
Everyone in India fought in this battle against the coronavirus. Today, India is one country that has been successful in saving the lives of more and more of its citizens, and where today the number of people infected with corona is decreasing rapidly. Do you remember that? Were you feeling hopeful when that happened? I think as a system, as the entire country, we probably got into this jubilant mood much sooner than the virus had its own plans. Starting from the end of last year uh, till almost beginning of February, almost everything opened up. The elections were announced, the religious congregations started, cinemas were running full house, the schools and colleges were started. There were crowds everywhere. And as you are aware, crowds are perfect super spreading events. So we created this conducive atmosphere for faster transmission while the virus was undergoing its own changes. It had its own plans. So it's not just one. Now there are around three variants which are imported and there are some homegrown variants. Together, we have multiple variants creating havoc in the country. What about as one of those variants that you mentioned, this double mutant one that seems to have popped up, how much of it is to blame for this spike? The honest answer for that question is we simply don't know. This is a net effect of so many factors. Now we are running out of options. We don't know what to do. So each state is doing its own thing because we have to somehow prevent as many deaths as possible. How do you see the pandemic changing India's healthcare system in the long term? I have two perspectives, one aspirational and what can really happen. An aspirational aspect is I would want the policymakers, politicians to recognize the importance of how strong should be the public health system. If we do not recognize this as an opportunity, to improve public health system, I think we have to face many more pandemics in future. So that's aspirational. But generally, in most countries, what would happen is there is a crisis, you respond it uh, in a very reactive way, and once it is over, you forget about the entire thing. The reason this happens is, uh, this is the same human psychological response uh, of how to ensure preventing fire. Every time there is fire, people do talk about how to prevent it. They give accolades to the firefighters, but nobody thinks either about the fire or the firefighters afterwards. That may be a sad reality. It is so true. And, and you're right. And, and it happens all over the world. But before we get to that possible sad reality, a huge concern globally right now is vaccination. India is the world's largest vaccine manufacturer generally, but now it can't keep up with the COVID-19 demand and is importing because of the dire need. I asked Dr. Babu how the rollout is going. I think India's vaccination efforts, again, were probably slower because we thought uh, we did reasonably well much earlier than what we should have. But now it has uh, got onto pace. The Modi government's vaccine rollout has picked up pace, but also controversy. 
People over the age of 45 will get the shot for free at public sites. But the federal government is leaving it to states to decide how to vaccinate young adults. For many, the only option will be going to private clinics and paying for the jab. And that has people worried that only the rich will get vaccinated. India is one of the only places in the world letting vaccines sell on the open market like this. And it's unclear if and how that policy will change as the rollout continues. Is there an end in sight for this pandemic in India? If there is an end in sight uh, for this uh, pandemic anywhere in the world, then there will be in India as well. The reason I say that is, as an epidemiologist, when you look at uh, the way the virus is evolving, the way it has thrown so many surprises, I don't think this virus is going to disappear one day. It will probably become endemic. The real challenge here is to not allow high transmission in any part of the world. So I think we can't do this piecemeal. And this is where the role of World Health Organization is very critical in taking the uh, leadership and then in ensuring that all the countries are working as partners and friends. Mm-hmm. So how are you doing? How are you feeling knowing you have that extra level of insight into this as an epidemiologist, but also just as an Indian citizen who has family and who lives there? What has this been like for you? The last one year has been uh, completely uh, life-changing. I have gone through all sorts of intellectual challenges of trying to bring the world-class implementation science into practice. But then there are times where you emotionally uh, are completely drained and to the extent that you break down, you go through the depression, uh, you and at, at times you feel like nothing can change and then you want to give up. But then you think it, it's simply not the right thing to do. So you again get up and with the uh, new energy start working, thinking that it will make some changes. It, it has been a year of uh, mixed reactions, but I don't think I would have learned this in any school or any textbook. This experience is real. I hope I don't have to use this again because I don't want another pandemic or another wave afflicting human beings. But are we prepared to change as a global community? Are we prepared to learn from each other, collaborate with each other? I am an eternal optimist. Despite of all the challenges, probably I'll continue as long as I can as a public health person. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Babu, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, especially when I know it is such a busy time for you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Malik. It's a pleasure talking to you. So much of this story is heartbreaking and heavy. But hope is an important part of it as well. The calls and social media requests are out of desperation, but also a belief that someone out there can help. And Dr. Shraddha Subramanian, who we heard at the top of the episode, ended her messages to us with her own thoughts about where she finds hope. On terrifying days, when I hear epidemiologists say that this will go on for another two or three years at best, I think of my patient Suruli, a migrant labourer. He spoke only Tamil, one of the thousands of languages spoken in India, but not in this city. As chance would have it though, I can speak Tamil too. Suruli had no idea why he'd been admitted or what was wrong with him and was afraid of losing his job. 
In my time there, I spoke to his employer and could help him secure a place to go to after his discharge. Simple things, really, but an opportunity to make another human being feel slightly less alone, and that's how I convince myself that there is some hope. And that's the take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve, with Dina Kispe, Nikine Oliai, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Finton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Steve Lack mixed and edited this episode. And Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. We'd like to thank all of the doctors and patients who sent in their stories during such a hectic and frightening time. Special thanks also to Girish Burde, Jayendra Burde, and Ashish Malhotra. We'll be back 